Well, good morning again, everybody. It's great to see you. Uh, Praise the Lord. Thank you, Derek, for leading us in communion this morning. Fantastic job. Um, And by the way, one of the things that uh, young Derek will learn is that uh, if you're going to take a shot at somebody, don't take a shot at the one who's speaking immediately after you are. (laughs) Um, But no, great job. That was a fantastic job. Hope you all had a great week. Uh, Again, thank you, Derek, for leading us in communion. Thank you, Nathan, for joining us in worship this morning. Uh, Isn't it great to see what the Lord is doing and just how he's expanding the ministry here at Community Church? It just thrills my heart to see people stepping out and using their gifts and their talents uh, for the Lord, just plugging into these areas of ministry that edify the body and bring glory to God. Uh, What a wonderful thing to see. And so today, we're going to be continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 13, and this morning we're going to be covering the middle portion of chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 21 in Luke chapter 13. And so this is where we're going to see that Christ has now come off the streets, you could say, right? Probably still in the last six months of his earthly ministry here. But now he's actually going to be back in the synagogues teaching on the Sabbath. And by the way, this is going to be much to the chagrin of this religious ruler that we're going to see in our text today who was present at the time because Christ is also going to be healing on the Sabbath. And so after he's had words with his adversaries and sort of set them straight by pointing out their own hypocrisy in regard to this uh, Sabbath healing, Christ is going to give us two parables. And they explain the kingdom of God. And some, some might even say that they explain really a sad truth in regard to the kingdom of God. And, and I'll explain as we move through the text. But if you don't mind, let's pray again quickly before we get into the scripture. We love you, Lord. Thank you again for a beautiful time of worship, a beautiful time of communion. Thank you, Lord, for all who are gathered here around your word to hear from you. And I pray, Lord, through the power of your spirit and the power of your word, that you would teach us this morning. Help us to learn whatever it is that we need to be learning. Help us to know how to apply the truth we hear today to our own life so that we can become more like Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so starting in Luke chapter 13, verse 10, it reads like this. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, There was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it. For 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. And when he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Verse 18, then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? 
and to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again, he said, what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. All right, so for comparison and further study on this passage, which I highly recommend, then I would say go back and read uh, Matthew 13, really the entire chapter, okay? Matthew 13, and then also you can find comparison in Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 32. But Luke writing here in verse 10 tells us about a time that Christ heals a woman who had a spirit of infirmity. It reads like this in verse 10. We'll go verse by verse. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Okay, so we see here that Christ has now come in from the crowds. He was out teaching to the multitudes. He's now in from the crowds and teaching again in the synagogues on a Sabbath. And so what this tells me right away is that the religious crowd needed to hear the truth inside the synagogue as much as the crowds out in the multitude needed to hear the truth. Right, we need to hear the truth in here as much as they need to hear the truth out there. Right? And so... We're going to see as we move through this text that corruption is all too common among those who claim to be religious. And that's a sad truth we're going to find. Verse 11. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. Okay, so this word bent here, it literally means bent double. Okay, so she was bent over. She was completely bent forward, right? And she was unable to raise herself up in any way. I like what Spurgeon said here. He said, for 18 years, she had not gazed upon the sun. For 18 years, no star of night had gladdened her eye. Her face was drawn downward toward the dust and all the light of her life was dim. She walked about as if she were searching for a grave, and I do not doubt she often felt it would have been gladness to have found one. Man, what a way to say that. 18 years of complete misery, right? Remember, 18 people died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. That's verse 4. And here a woman had this infirmity for 18 years. So this should tell us right away that trouble in this world can affect many people at one time or it can affect any one person for a long time. Okay, that's the trouble we're faced with. And this is for believers or non-believers alike. This woman had a spirit of infirmity, which means a disposition of weakness. Okay, she was bent double in weakness. And so we have to ask a question here. Was this merely a physical ailment? Was this a demonic disability or could it be both? And I think, of course, we get our answer once we get down to verse 16. This woman, Scripture says, has been bound by Satan. And so uh, we'll get into that a little bit more. But nowhere in Scripture can I see that we have an answer as to why. I don't know why, right? Was it her sin? Was she a worse sinner than all of the others? Remember the Galileans? Remember those who died and perished because the tower in Siloam fell on them? This was Jesus' whole point, right? So based on the context of what Christ has been teaching, I would say no. She was not a worse sinner than the rest, based on verses 2 through 4. In fact, I think this woman could have been a God-fearing woman. 
To take it one step further, I think this woman was a woman of faith, and I think Scripture will bear that out. She was, after all, in the synagogue. Okay, that doesn't make anybody uh, a Christian. We understand that, right? But the Scripture says she was a daughter of Abraham, which does mean something. This means that she was more than just a Jewess. She was more than just Jewish by lineage. Okay, she had the faith of Abraham. That's what Scripture is telling us. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, Therefore, know that only those, only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Okay, that would apply to daughters too, right? So this woman had faith in the God of Abraham. But again, as to the question of why she had been bound by Satan and given this infirmity, I mean... The most educated and thoughtful and accurate answer that I can give you this morning is, I don't know. I don't know. Why did the Galileans get murdered in the temple? Why did the tower fall on those people in Siloam? Again, bad things happen in a fallen world, don't they? That's one of the things we learned from that lesson. Think about it like this. Why did God allow Satan to go after Job like he did in Job 1.8? Many speculate it was because of Job's pride. Well, why did Satan or why did God allow Satan to sift Peter like wheat? Luke twenty two thirty one. Remember, before Peter denied Christ three times, Christ said, "You're going to do that." Satan's you know asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Jesus told Peter. Why uh, why did God allow that? We know that God allowed Paul to have a thorn in the flesh. Remember that. Paul called it a messenger of Satan. And he said it was there in order to buffet him. You know what that word buffet means? It means to strike with the fist. So that's why God put this messenger of Satan in Paul. To strike with a fist. And Paul tells us why. He said, so that I won't exalt myself. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So, again, I can't tell you for sure why God allowed all of this here to happen to this woman in particular, but here's one thing I do know. I know that God has a way of getting the attention of His children. I know that God has a way of keeping us humble before Him until we understand that all we need is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the truth is, none of us are exempt from difficulty. Because again, as Derek pointed out this morning, bad things happen to all people, right? It happens to all of us. And so maybe a more biblical way of explaining this here, this difficulty that we see in the life of believers would be to say that we have trials. Okay, maybe that's a more biblical way to address this. God often allows trials to come upon his children. Listen to how James tells us. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That tells me that there's going to be more than one. And it will look different than the other one. There's going to be various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Wow. So we're going to have trials, but they're there for a reason. They're there for a purpose in order to accomplish something. Christ wants us complete. Christ doesn't want us to lack anything. So believer, understand that you belong to Christ. Even in the midst of your trials, you belong to him, right? So he is working in you and he is working through you in order to accomplish his perfect will. 
Just know that. That's Bible truth, right? In other words, you're not being punished. You're being perfected. That's the way to look at that. Verse 12. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. So, nowhere does Scripture tell us that this woman came to the synagogue in order to be healed. We don't see that. So, think about it. Even though this woman was bent over in her spine, utterly crippled, right? I mean, she could have stayed home. That would have probably been more comfortable to her, right? Kick back in the recliner, watch a little Netflix, whatever. But she decided to come to worship, even in the condition that she was in, right? How many of us healthy Christians could say that we've been faithful to attend worship week after week for the last 18 years. I'm not pointing a finger at anybody. I'm, I'm included in all of this, right? But we often use a runny nose or a ball game or an ache or a pain or whatever we can come up with in order to miss worship. And again, I'm not casting stones. I've lived this. Me and a buddy one time, this was years ago. I mean, I haven't sinned in a long, long time. <laughs> so me and a buddy years ago decided what we were going to do is it was a Wednesday night. The hogs were playing in Bud Walton in Fayetteville, and we had been pretty faithful to go to church. It was a Wednesday after all, not Sunday, but the church was gathering, and we said, you know, what? we'd rather gather down in Bud Walton, watch the hogs play. So we went down there. The place was just crowded with people. We couldn't find any place to park. And so I parked at an Arby's, right? And we went to the game. Had a great time, right? I can't tell you who won because of, of what I'm about ready to tell you. I don't remember any of that. I remember this very vivid, vividly. We got back after the game and went to Arby's, and I couldn't find my truck anywhere. And so I went into inside, and, and the, the manager was ready for me. He handed me a ticket with the number of the tow company. He said, here you go. Here's your truck. This was a long time ago. Like, I don't, I don't think I had a cell phone. I might have had a beeper, you know. And so what happened was I didn't know where this place was. Fayetteville's a pretty big city, so I had to take off walking, me and my buddy. I went to two different tow companies that I could think of in town until I finally found my truck. And we walked so much, we both got blisters on our feet. I know you're like, cry me a river, you know, but I'm like, <laughs> this whole time, I'm thinking, yes, Lord, I get it. I get it now. Uh, maybe church is more important than the Razorbacks, right? So uh, that was the end of that for me. Uh, but that's just one example of me choosing something else over gathering with the body of Christ. And it might be that I missed a blessing that night, right? This woman came as bent over as she was to nourish her soul and Christ healed her body as well. John Corson said she would have missed the moment of the miraculous had she stayed at home the day Jesus just happened to walk in. Hmm. I wonder how much of God that I've missed by refusing to make worship in God's house a priority. How much have I missed? Guys, the one thing that we need to do when we don't want to worship is worship. Amen. The one thing we, we need to do when we don't want to pray is pray. The one thing that we must do when we don't want to come to worship and gather as a body of believers in church, the one thing that we've got to do is go to church. You see what I mean? We don't need to be missing out on the blessings of God. 
because of some preoccupation with the world or maybe our back hurts or whatever. Now, you get the flu like I get it. We don't want to share that with you. You know, but we've got to stop making these little excuses that stand in the way of our service to God and his blessing to us. Right? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, Hebrews 10.25. So again, don't miss the miracle of meeting with the church of God. Don't miss that miracle because God does great things in the midst of his people. There's no doubt about that. We have promises from his word that he is with us. Let's look at the actions of Christ here in verse 12. The first thing we see from Christ is that he saw her. Christ notices things that we often overlook. But he saw her. He saw this woman. There's never been a need that Christ hasn't noticed. And that includes in your life too. The second thing we see from Christ is that he called her. So he saw her and he called her. Okay, so the first step in spiritual or physical healing is to answer the call, answer his call, right? Where did he call her? In the New King James Version, it says he called her to himself. And I realized that the words to himself here were in italics, okay? But that word to call, it means to summon. So he summoned her, right? This crippled woman was summoned, which means she had to respond to the call. Right? In other words, she had to walk over to him in front of everybody, most likely, by faith. And the third thing we see from Christ is that he said. So he saw, he called, he said. What did he say? He said, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. In that one statement, we see two things about Christ. We see his compassion. He saw the need and he met the need. So we see his authority. Christ has the compassion and the authority to meet your need. He says, be loosed from your infirmity. That means he set her free. He set her free from bondage. Verse 13. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So Christ laid his hands on her, meaning he touched her. Christ is a very personal savior. He's not distant. He's not that God up there somewhere. He's very personal. He touched her. And nowhere in Scripture do we see that Christ ever laid his hands on a demon-possessed person. Okay, so what does this tell us? It tells us that this woman's issue, although it was wrought by Satan, this issue was physical, not spiritual. Okay, she had a physical ailment. In other words, she was demon-oppressed. She was not demon-possessed. Okay, there's a difference, right? For the believer, for the one who has faith in Christ... The word tells us that he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So we are possessed, you could say, by the Holy Spirit of God. When you repent of your sins and trust in Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit resides inside you. You cannot be possessed by a demon or a devil. Okay, but you can be oppressed, affected. Right. And so that's what we see here. Okay, we see someone who had the faith of Abraham being affected physically by de demonic oppression. And so, but I want you to notice the result of his touch here. It's immediate and the healing is complete, right? So we learn here that a true physical healing from the Lord Jesus Christ never ever takes time to go into effect. Okay, it doesn't. It's never gradual. It's always instantaneous and it's always a result of being wholly restored 
completely restored without exception. Okay, so this flies in the face, face rather of these modern day faith healers who, you know, whenever they come and, and say you're going to heal your arm and they walk back to their chair with a sore arm still telling them that they don't have enough faith, baloney. Okay, Christ heals immediately and he restores completely every single time. She was made straight, the word says. She was set up from being deformed. That word literally means built anew. Isn't that great? I hope you can start to see the spiritual application here now, right? This is just like when Christ heals somebody spiritually. Their salvation is immediate and it's complete, meaning it's eternal. This is a great picture of salvation. You and I, we were once bent over in sin, weren't we? We were once bent over, but when Christ straightens out our crooked soul, we are built new. We are made new and all glory belongs to God. When Christ heals our soul, when he forgives us of our sins and straightens us up, right? Our natural response is to glorify God, just like this woman does here. Now, this woman, again, had likely been going to the synagogue now for 18 years as a crippled woman being bent over, right? But notice she was not healed until she met Jesus. Guys, going to church never saved anyone. Just attending church, as important as it is, to not forsake the assembling of our, ourselves together, very important, that's never saved anybody. Okay? Only faith in Jesus can do that. This woman was not healed until she met Jesus. Verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. Now, how much sense does this make? Really? Right. I mean, the restoration of a woman of faith makes this ruler of the synagogue indignant. I mean, what? This ought to tell us something about his heart, shouldn't it? I like what Adam Clark said. He said, it would seem as if the demon who had left the woman's body had gotten into the ruler's heart. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this attitude here from the ruler, it comes from a misunderstanding of the law. Like if we give him the benefit of the doubt, we can say, oh, he just misunderstood at best. But at worst, then this is a legalistic misrepresentation of the law. Right. And of course, the difference lies within the motive of his heart. It's a matter of the heart. But we've seen this before. We've studied through this before in Luke 6. We're going to see it again when we get to Luke 14 because Christ's healing on the Sabbath was a regular point of contention between him and the religious elites of the day. But I'll tell you that this legalistic religion, this kind of religion, has always led to rule keeping. It's never led to restoration. Okay, that's just a fact of the matter. I mean, where is the love in what this guy said? Where is the grace or the mercy in what he said? It's not there. Not to mention that this indignant ruler had absolutely no power to heal anybody, whether it was the first six days of the week or on the seventh. Yeah. Right? That's only Jesus. So we need to take note here, not only of this guy's lack of spiritual ability and his sort of fake religious indignance, we need to take note here of his lack of integrity. Okay, this man was a coward. How do we know that? 
Well, because he addresses Jesus indirectly through the crowd. He didn't even address him to his face, right? He knew he was outmatched in every area, intellectually, spiritually, whatever. So he tries to curry favor with the crowd instead of confessing the reality of Christ, right? Guys, pride is a powerful enemy of our soul. Yes, this woman, she had a physical infirmity, absolutely. But this man, this ruler, he was bent over spiritually, wasn't he? He was deformed spiritually, which is a far worse condition to be in, and he needed to be straightened out spiritually. Lord, help us if we ever, and I mean ever, let tradition take the place of truth in our church. Lord, help us. And may we never, ever, Let religious rules replace compassion. May we never let that happen here. But I do find it interesting just how many times that Christ healed on the Sabbath. Have you ever noticed that? I wonder sometimes if maybe he did this just to show them that there's no work that can be done in regard to the redemption of our souls. Maybe that's why he did that. I mean, we know that God alone done all the work. Right? And then he rested. So that tells us that redemption comes from the work of Christ through his completed work on the cross. You and I can never earn it. We can't work for it. It's merely a gift of God given to us, right? And I think Christ proves that right here by healing somebody on the Sabbath. Okay, think about it. This is on a day when his people were commanded not to work, yet Christ done the work right? Sinners are set free by grace through faith because of the work of redemption that Christ completed for us on his cross, right? He's done all the work. We find our rest in him. In other words, Christ is our Sabbath. Christ is our Sabbath. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2 verses 27 through 28, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Amen. Christ done the work. Verse 15. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? Now this word hypocrite we've run across before. It's very common in Christ's language toward the religious elite. It means actor. If we were to look at this word literally, it means second face. That's what that word literally means. That's where we get our phrase two-faced, right? So Jesus is saying, look, y'all, don't act like you don't work on the Sabbath, okay? Because you do. So here Christ confronts bad doctrine with the same authority that he confronted demonic oppression. And I love that. Christ is exposing the fact that you guys love your animals far more than you love each other. They have compassion on their livestock, but they're critical toward one another. So Christ is saying, how much better is it for a woman who has been made in the Imago Dei, the image of God, to be set free from her infirmity than it is for maybe one of your animals to get a little thirsty if we go a little long in the synagogue today. Right? Jesus is saying, you loosen your animals to get to water on the Sabbath, and I loosened this woman from her bondage of 18 years. And you have a problem with that? Which one's greater? Which one is greater? Guys, doing good on the Sabbath was not prohibited by the law. Doing good is being like God. So Christ is saying, have compassion 
on one another, right? You guys are more eager to lead your livestock to the river than you are to lead this little old woman to her redeemer. So the truth is, you guys only have the power to loosen the knot in your donkey's stall. That's what you can do. But I can loosen the knot in your soul. I can make you straight, right? I can straighten out your soul, verse 16. So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. Now, think about this. Who in the world told Jesus that this woman had been bound for 18 years? And he wasn't reading from the Gospel of Luke. Who told him? Nobody. Nobody told Christ that. Christ was already intimately aware of this woman. Already. He knew her story. In fact, Satan would have had to have gotten permission from him in order to oppress her. Right? So Christ had heard her prayers for healing. He knew her struggle. After all, again, she was a daughter of Abraham, which means that she was a woman of faith. Luke 19, 9, Galatians 3, 7. So what, is, what Christ is doing here is he's revealing his deity. Christ is revealing his deity here. He is all-knowing. He knows all about this woman's pain, but he's trying to help the other people here see past their religious traditions so that they can see it too, right? So he tells them to think of it. Man, I love that. Guys, think about others instead of yourself. That's what he's saying. Think about this, right? Christ here is being very passionate in this discourse, but he's also being very persuasive, isn't he? Think about this. Not enough people think anymore, do we? I mean, logic and reason have given way to either religious ritualism or some sort of satanic humanism. We don't think. What we need to do, what you and I need to do, is get into the book, get into the scriptures, read it, but don't stop there. Think about it. All right? Process what God is saying. Verse 17. And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. So the truth we find here is that, guys, one day, all of Christ's adversaries will ultimately be put to shame. The word is all, all of them will be put to shame. So I think it would be better for you and I to find ourselves in that multitude who are rejoicing in his glory today than among those who set themselves against Christ and will ultimately be put to shame, right? So those who by faith receive Christ today will be saved and we will ultimately rejoice in his glory. But those who choose to remain his adversary will in fact be put to shame. And so now we get to the parables, okay? Next, Christ gives us two examples here of what the kingdom of God is like. And I think that we definitely need to be very, very careful here of the context so that we don't misunderstand the truth of what Jesus is teaching us here. Because I will tell you that many scholars unfortunately believe that both of these parables we're about to read, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, Okay, many scholars believe that both of these are examples of sort of growth and expansion in the kingdom of God in a good way. Okay, in other words, they think that they're both, both positive in nature. They would say that, well, the mustard seed uh, growing into this large tree here, that, that represents church growth. 
okay, worldwide. I mean, people are getting saved everywhere and so on. They would say that the leaven here represents the gospel going out into the entire world. Man, that sounds great, but be careful with that. We must stay within the context of the scriptures because if we stay within the context of what Jesus has already been teaching, then I think what we're going to find out is that that's not the case at all. Okay? In fact, what Christ is really telling us here is that there will be corruption in the kingdom. So we see a warning in these two parables. Keep in mind, this word leaven that we're going to be looking at, that appears in Scripture just short of 100 times. Okay, uh, Some people say 98, some people say 99. Okay, uh, but we know that about 75 times in the Old Testament it appears. We know that about 23 times in the New Testament this word leaven appears, and every single time it's in the negative form. Okay, so let's look at these parables and see if we can't stay within the context of what Christ is teaching. First is the parable of the mustard seed, verse 18. Then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? So Christ gives an earthly example of a spiritual kingdom or a spiritual truth, right? This is a parable. In fact, in Mark 4.30, Christ says, with what parable shall we picture it? Meaning the kingdom of God. So here is a word picture of a spiritual place. Those in his kingdom are born of his spirit, right? That's what we need to understand here. This is a spiritual thing, right? It, Christ's kingdom is inhabited by those who are born again, born of his spirit, right? Verse 19, it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden and it grew and became a large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Okay. So now, Again, many would say that Jesus is just talking about how the kingdom is going to grow so large that it, it's just eventually going to be this place of rest and refuge for millions of people around the world. Okay? And honestly, if we think about it, right, they're partially right. Okay? There's some truth in that. But what we really see here is a picture of God's kingdom as it will exist right now. Okay? This is the time between his crucifixion and his second coming. Right? This is the kingdom now that we're living in. Okay? Yes, this kingdom will grow, but not exactly like it should. And that's the point. Here's why we know this. Mustard seeds are very small. Right? We understand that. Mustard seeds do not grow into trees. They grow into shrubs. They're an herb. Okay, so that's what they grow into. Right? They're not trees. And so what this tells us is this kind of growth that we see in this parable is abnormal. It's an unnatural kind of growth. And I want you to notice what's nesting in it. Birds. Right? The birds here represent Satan or the wicked one. Again, go back to Matthew chapter 13 and read through that chapter. These birds are imposters. Okay? Again, Matthew 13, 4, 13, 19. You can read this for comparison, and I hope that you will. Christ explains all of this in the parable of the sower, for example. D.A. Carson said it like this. He said, Close study of birds as symbols in the Old Testament, and especially in literature of later Judaism, shows that birds regularly symbolize evil and even demons or Satan. That's exactly right. We see this in several places in Scripture, and I'll give you one example in Revelation 18, 2. This is what it says. 
And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit. And listen to this, a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Hmm. You see, birds in the Bible represent evil. Okay? And so, I've been wondering personally all week, why these birds keep flying into my office window. Many of y'all know that my wife feeds all of the birds in Franklin County. Uh, so if you're from like St. Louis County or, you know, St. Charles County, you, you take care of your own birds. We've got Franklin County covered. But all week long, and I'm not kidding about this, all week long it's just been bang, bang. Like, am I right? An unusual number of birds have been flying into the window this week, right? And I guess in preparation for this message, I don't know. But uh, it turns out they're all devil birds, right? <laughs> they're all messengers of Satan. They knew this message was coming, and they didn't want to hear it. So, you know, we might want to rethink how much food we're giving to all of these devil birds. But here's what's going on. Here's what's going on. Jesus is saying, look, guys, some professions of faith will be authentic. Okay, some professions of faith will be authentic, yet others will not be. In other words, there's going to be corruption in the kingdom, okay? And so we need to look at the kingdom of God in all of its three tenses here. All right, the kingdom has come. That's past tense. How did it come? In the form of its king, Jesus Christ. The kingdom is here. That's present tense. Okay, that's in the form of Christians, all of those who follow Christ. And the kingdom of God is coming. That's future tense. And this will be the time when Christ returns to rule and reign on the earth and set all things right. And so Christ is talking about the present form of the kingdom, right? He's talking about the church age, the time that we are living in right now. And Christianity all throughout history has included all of those who profess Christ, right? All of us, everyone who takes the name of Jesus is included in that kingdom, but only Christ knows how many of those professions are real, right? Only Christ knows those who are truly born again, okay? And so we know about false teachers. We've seen them. We know about false prophets within our midst. Scripture has told us about this. We see it in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 5, among many other places. Okay, so here what we see in this parable is vultures or birds that have come into the Christian camp. And they have been guided by the prince of the power of the air, right? Ephesians 2.2, 2, our enemy, the one who wants to do us harm. Okay, Satan wants to harm the true church of God. Listen to the context. He wants to bend us over in infirmities, right? He wants to hinder the work of Christ. He wants to double us over in doubt and disbelief so that the work of Christ cannot be accomplished in this world. This is what Christ is saying. Guys, this is why at Community Church, we have got to be Bible people. We have to be a Bible church. This is why we can't be blown around by every wind of doctrine, Ephesians 4.14. This is why we must guard against letting any kind of evil ever nest in our branches. We can't do it. Corruption must not find its refuge here, right? Lastly, Christ teaches, about, teaches us about the parable 
of the leaven. In verse 20, again, he said, to what shall I like in the kingdom of God? So again, here's another comparison made by Christ that will represent corruption in the kingdom. Okay, again, many scholars disagree with this, but they would say that this represents the gospel. And to that, I would just say, look, do your homework. Okay, study out the scriptures. Leaven is only used in a negative sense in scripture, always. Okay, so just be careful, believe what you want, but not just because somebody told you, go and search it out for yourself. I don't believe that the leaven represents the gospel. I don't believe that this is a positive representation of the kingdom. Okay, again, because leaven, it represents sin in scripture. It's always a picture of sin and corruption. And I could give you several verses to substantiate that. And so if leaven is represented as evil everywhere in the Bible, why would this be the only exception? I don't think it would. What this tells us is, guys, there's sin in the camp. Okay, there will be sin in the modern representation, the present age of the kingdom. Corruption will be evident in the church. Verse 21, it's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Okay, so again, leaven means sin. What does leaven do? It infects, right? It pervades. That's one of the things that leaven does. By its own influence, it's pervasive. And so just as leaven infects the whole loaf of bread, sin will unfortunately be a pervading influence in the church. Here's another reason why I don't believe this is talking about the gospel. If the, if the leaven means the gospel, why did the lady hide it? Where do you ever see the gospel hidden in the scriptures? It's to be proclaimed, isn't it? Right? Never hidden. To hide means to conceal something. We don't conceal the gospel. We share it. We proclaim it. Right? So this woman, the, the sin is hidden. It's concealed right here in three measures of meal. Okay, so three measures equals two pecks. Okay, which is half a bushel. Yeah. Okay, so I don't understand measurements or math. Okay, but I do know this. This is an unusually large amount. Okay, this amount of meal right here would have been enough to bake bread for a hundred people. That's a lot of work for one woman. Okay, so can you see what just a little sin will do? Just a little sin in the church. Can you see how many people it will infect? A little leaven will infect a very large amount of bread, right? Galatians 5, 9. And so what we're learning here is that a large portion of the church, the kingdom of God on earth, a large portion of the church will experience corruption, okay? How sad is it to know that the church of God will grow so large with corruption and sin, We've seen that, though. We've seen churches explode. We've seen the church abroad grow in ways that are not biblical. We've seen pagan influences. We've seen unbiblical religious practices. We've seen pride. We've seen greed and lust for power. All of these things have shown up in the church. And we know it because we've seen it, right? There's always been false doctrine that's trying to find its way into the church of God. And of course, it's not always in plain sight, is it? It has to be hidden. It has to be hidden. Sin works best 
when it's done in secret. Sin works best under the cover of darkness when it's hidden. But it spreads quickly, just like leaven, and it infects everything that it touches. Again, Paul said a little leaven, just a little, leavens the whole lump, Galatians 5.9. So here's the truth of what Christ is teaching us this morning. In the present form of the kingdom of God, okay, on earth, the church age, until he comes, the wheat and the tares are going to grow up together. Okay? That's Matthew 13, 24 through 30. And by the way, that parable of the wheat and tares, it appears in Matthew 13, right before the mustard seed and leaven parables. They're connected. Okay? They're very connected in context. So, on the one hand, yeah, the gospel is going to go out to the world. But on the other hand, there's not going to be peace on earth on earth until Christ comes and sets up his kingdom here and makes all things right. That's future tense. That's the future kingdom. Christ told his disciples in Luke 17, 26, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. For a refresher, God flooded the earth back then because of sin. Right? That's how bad it was. Jesus is saying, it's going to be like that. That kind of sin is going to be pervading. Not only in the world, but in the church. People are going to be eating and drinking, doing their thing. Right? Jesus said, they're going to be buying and selling. They're going to be planting and building. and They're just going to be going through their life. right? Just like they always normally would. In other words, the wheat and the tares are growing up together. They grow up in the same place. And you know what else is going to be happening? Birds are going to be nesting in the branches. They're going to be nesting in places that they shouldn't be nesting. They're going to be snatching away seed from the soil. We've talked about those parables. And leaven is going to be infecting the house of God, the very place where people come to take the bread of life. Sin will be there. So what's the point? Well, for one, if you're looking for heaven on earth, you won't find it. Okay, things are not going to get better and better and better and better. Things are going to get worse. Things are going to get worse until Christ comes. Okay, that's clear. If you're looking for peace and prosperity in this life, on this world, you won't find it, at least not for your soul. Okay, you won't. So what we're seeing in our passage today is that Satan will bind people and Christ will set them free. Okay, Satan will blind people with religion. He will blind people with ritual. But Christ will come along and correct our vision for us through a redemptive relationship with Him so that we can have compassion on each other. Guys, things are never going to be perfect here in a fallen world that's corrupted by our sin. Not until Christ comes again. Not until He comes to make all things right. Just like He made this woman straight. Right? One day Christ will come and make things right. There won't be an option. Right? Just like he made this woman straight. Christ has the compassion and the authority to do all of that. But until then, birds are going to nest in our branches. And leaven is going to infect our bread. But we've been warned, haven't we? We've been warned. So what we've got to do is discern the time. Just like Jesus has been telling us in Luke 12, 56, we must discern this time. 
Because until Christ comes, we've been sent out as sheep among wolves. Right? Therefore, we've got to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That's Matthew 10, 16. So what we've got to be concerned with as the body of Christ, as the family of Christ, we've got to be more concerned with evangelism, personal discipleship, right? serving in His kingdom, more than we're concerned with numerical growth. Now, I'm not saying growing in number is a bad thing. Right, Because every number represents a soul that Christ died for. I hope we grow big. That's fine. But we're never going to be infatuated with how many, how many. It's, are you growing in Christ? Are you a better witness for Christ this week than you were last week? How's your walk? Are you reading? Are you praying? Are you growing deeper in the Word? Are you falling more and more in love with Jesus Christ? Are you serving Him? That's what we're going to concern ourselves with. Right? We have to protect the doctrine of the church. Just a couple of more scriptures here and we're done, so bear with me. Second John chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 says whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. That's black and white. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, this one, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. Woe Guys, we cannot let bad doctrine into this house. We can't do it. There's too much at stake. We have to deliver the truth that's been given to us once and for all, to all the saints. Listen to what Paul said. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Do you see how the gospel is passed down? From person to person, right? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the very gospel that leads to salvation. Jude chapter 1 verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to do this. Contend earnestly for the faith. Contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Are we contending for the faith? I can tell you the world's contending for something. It's not our faith. We are the ones that must contend for that, right? One more thing and then we're done. The church where I came from in North Bend, Oregon, Shoreline Community Church, that's our sending church. That's uh, one of our sponsored churches. I love them dearly and... um, had just an amazing time of ministry there. But one of the things I always liked about the building, which is kind of cool thinking back on it, because the building that they meet in, that they purchased, was an old school. And they met in a gymnasium that was, had been remodeled. And so uh, pretty cool. And they're on Clark Street. Uh, so that's kind of cool. But one of the things they did above the stage as you walk into the sanctuary, they had written... Uh, The scriptures and the scriptures alone are the authority for what we believe. And I love that because you walk into that church, that's one of the first things you see. When you're standing in worship, the worship team is just below that sign. And so you know that you're worshiping in the truth of God. You know that every song has been filtered through that saying, right? So you're worshiping right. You're, You're coming to a church that has a high value on the word of God. The scriptures and the scriptures alone are the authority for what we believe. Again, I've always loved that, but there was a part of me 
that always wished we could have added two more words to the end. Just two. I wish it would say the scriptures and the scriptures alone are the authority for what we believe and practice. And practice. See, we want to be Bible people who not only believe Bible things. We want to be Bible people who do Bible things. Right? That's biblical Christianity. And we can't allow this world or the enemy of our souls to come in and corrupt our biblical Christianity. The word says for believers, come out from among them and be separate. Jude just told us, contend for the faith. Right? So guys, we have got to beware of the birds. We got to beware of the leaven. And we must continue to contend for the true gospel. The gospel that was given to us that we're charged to give to the world. We've got to contend for that faith. We have to continue to practice biblical Christianity in our personal life and in our life together. We've got to contend for this faith as found in this book, the Holy Scriptures. And we can't waver on this. There's too much at stake, right? Christ warned us there's going to be corruption in the kingdom. And Lord, help us if we ever find it here. We must contend for the true faith of the gospel. Amen. We love you, Lord, and thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this warning, for this charge from the scriptures. To beware of the birds, to beware of the leaven, to beware of false gospels, false teachers, false prophets, people who will want to come in to the camp and pervert it with sin. Lord, please protect us. Please give us wisdom. Please give us discernment. Please give us the courage to contend for the faith. To not waver on the firm foundation we have in Christ and on the truth we find in your scriptures. Lord, may we never, ever waver. We know that this world is going to continue to make it tougher on Christians. We know that days are coming that won't be easy for us. You've told us this. So we expect it. But now's the time for us to really live out our faith. This is the time for us to put feet on our faith and live out what we believe. Lord, would you help us to do that? No more closet Christianity. No more cultural Christianity. We want biblical Christianity here. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit and with your power and with your wisdom to do just that. To live out the true gospel and to pass down the true gospel to the future generations. We thank you for that privilege. We thank you for the honor of being able to do that. Lord, this is your church. It's your church and we depend solely upon your power to help us to achieve whatever it is you want to achieve through us. So, Lord, we just surrender everything to you and trust that you will build your church and that you will use us to do it. And so, Lord, whatever we can do, whatever talents, whatever gifts we have, whatever resources, it's yours. We offer it to you. We belong to you. We were bought at a price. So, Lord, take us and use us however you see fit. If there's anybody hearing this message today and doesn't have a relationship with you, I pray that would change right now. 
I pray that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone by faith, believing he's the, that he is the Son of God, who died on a cross for their sins and rose again, that they would believe the gospel and be saved. We love you, Lord. Thank you again for this message in Christ's holy name. Amen.